This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, settle down. Settle down. Welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. We're here to tell you a couple things. Yeah. For example. And then we'll get out of your hair. <laughs> just going to jump in real quick. And then, then the just main. Just a quick two hour and 15 minute podcast <laughs> real quick about a bunch of stuff that may or may not be accurate, but we'll comes from the heart. Hair. And then it. we'll just jump right back out of the That's hair. That's right. We won't. We, we're not here to bug you. How's your hair doing here in the month 14 of COVID? Well, I actually just used say? a product by one of our sponsors, and I'm not going to say which one because it's going to sound like I'm fucking doing an ad. It, but is it fuck? Smells so good. Yes, you it's love a it? deep conditioner. This is terrible. We can't start off with a fake <laughs> we ad. We can't. We can't. Stephen, bleep all of this out. We just That's let right. it be a two minute bleep. Um, yeah. Is it the vinegar one? No, it's like a the conditioner. deep conditioner. Yeah. So it's doing better. But yeah, I, I, it's the heat. I feel like I've been having the heat on in the house lately because I run fucking freezing, turns out. Sure. Um, it's freezing here. It's so, it's cold, so cold here in L.A. Ooh. When it drops Ooh. down to 71. Oh, I can't take it. Cannot take it. <laughs> Literally, people are shoveling I eight know. feet of snow in their driveway. Well, that's not on us. I mean, move to L.A. Everyone else is we, doing it. We did not cause this global warming that we, is... We might have added. We didn't. We definitely didn't take away any global warming. <laughs> Look, we're, we can't say we didn't use a fuck ton of Aquanet yeah. all throughout the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, I and I had the, the acne on my forehead, the little whiteheads <laughs> on my forehead to prove it. Remember those? Because <laughs> you just hairspray? spraying your bangs up. But of course, yes. you get your forehead at the same time. Oh, yeah. I actually I had a look senior year, which was 88, Mm -hmm. not complimentary to my face (laughs) or anything, but it was like I thought I was being modern or something. So it was it was like I had like a long bob and then I wore it up in a clip and and I hairsprayed everything up and back. So it was like my bangs were going up and back. I I did that. And I think in the late 90s, that came back because I was like all about that. We have to let's find photos and put those on the Instagram because no, let's find draw a little picture. Let's take a stock photo of that kind of hairstyle. So everyone knows what we're talking about. And then put our faces over yours. You can do yours and then someone could Photoshop. It was very your hair. It's because it's I meant it. And that's what hurts me so bad. When I look back, I was like, God, this I thought this was such a good idea. All of it. I thought it was the height of fashion. You know what I did is like the um, chunky belt on for no reason around like my <laughs> like that, yeah. hip, like the white belt in the early 2000s. Yes. That was just like a belt sitting on my waist or my hips. 
Sure. It wasn't holding anything up. In fact, it was probably tugging my skirt down a little with its heft. Probably. Well, in the mid 80s, that look you would do over a cable knit sweater, which defied logic. And always it was like (laughs) in the 80s, we were bulking up in every possible way. It was just like shoulder pads, man, shoulder pads, huge cable knit sweaters that like went over your butt right above your knees. Mm -hmm. Then you'd belt it with a gigantic oversized belt. Mm -hmm. It was the strangest like. Yeah. How did we, I think we were all like, like they were crop dusting. The government was crop dusting at the time (laughs) and just kind of fucking with our brains. Putting these ideas into our head. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, we're going to give you some really good throwback Thursday fodder. That was their whole point. Is that they knew they hashtag. like Esprit, Esprit is not a real company. Yeah. We're just trying to humiliate you in the future. <laughs> Chunky socks don't make your calves <laughs> oh actually look good. And and three layers of different chunky socks, especially chunky make socks it. over white stirrup pants. Ever oh, ever stirrup. gotten to that? I mean, unless you were an equestrian, stirrup <laughs> pants didn't fucking look good on you. And they were like I too, so they would have just would have just chafed right off if you tried to ride a horse with them. Which yeah, course... they weren't. It you were just sitting in homeroom. There's yeah. no reason to be wearing stirrup pants at all. Is there ever any reason to be wearing stirrup pants unless you were on top of a horse? <laughs> unless you read Sassy magazine so many times, you just felt compelled. Mm. So unfair. Uh, what a horrible time. Let's go. Isn't it? Keep going. <laughs> Isn't I, it thought gonna, I thought you were going to say, what's cooking? <laughs> so it's cooking good looking. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm in the uh, like a little while ago. I read on, you know, social media or whatever. There's a bunch of people talking about. I think I've hit a wall. And uh-huh. I was like, shut up. <laughs> Truly, the last couple of days, I was just like, mm, I don't know is. how much longer I can do this. Here it is. Yeah. What season of quarantine are you in right now in your heart? The, um Season of the Witch, for sure. <laughs> where it's like I'm doing a lot of weird, you know, yeah. psychedelic dancing and staring at the ceiling. Or have you gotten to the, so like crystals and praying, is there going to be a full moon? I don't know. I I talked about this on uh, on our new, the new addition to the Exactly Right Media podcast, Corral, um, Lady to Lady. Mm-hmm. I've become strangely obsessed with my horoscope oh. in a way that is that I don't understand and I'm the one doing it. It's really weird. Like get up in the middle of the night and check it. Is it teaching you anything about yourself or like opening opening well, chakras? Well the good thing is there's so many good um, horoscope people. I'm not sure what the actual term is. Kind of like readers. You know, there's a, I guess account. Yeah, readers and accounts on Twitter. Yeah. If you get into horoscope Twitter, there are some brilliant people. Really cool, like giving good advice, just good overall things. Where it's like, well, right now we're in this Aquarius season, uh-huh. so it's everything's a little weird, and you need yeah. to be careful and with. Don't worry, things you say. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like the the hilarious mean, the hilariously mean ones that are like, sure. you're this, and nobody likes you. Yeah, you should, you so, should like try. Sorrowscopes. Is that a thing? Followed. Sorrowscopes on Twitter is hilarious. Will you read yeah. me mine? Sure. I'm not. I'll never seek my horoscope out but if i see a horoscope thing somewhere i'll definitely read it it's i think it's fun just really quick the the funny thing to me is that the, the um avatar for sorrowscopes is and, and the bio just says things are terrible mm. and the the avatar is julie andrews and the sound of music spinning on the on the mountain love it so it's really funny <laughs> gemini we connected the stars in your chart and it looks remarkably like a middle finger <laughs> 
And mine is Taurus. The stars have swiped left on your left. <laughs> oh my God. Very true, Soroscopes, you fucking asshole. I love it. And they have to yeah. come up with those daily. That's like impressive. Yeah. Whoever's doing those, bravo. They're enjoying it. I bet they're, they're getting a lot it. of like rage out. Yeah. Which I, yeah, right. I did recently. I, I was in the car alone for the first time in like a year and I started just yelling. And then sure. I told my therapist, like, I got really angry and I had rage yesterday and like, I'm worried about it. And she's like, no, that's good, Georgia. It's good. And I was like, oh, shit. You're supposed yep. to feel things. Absolutely. Like rage. I've been crying like crazy lately. Yeah. Hat. Yeah. It's good. Get it out. It's like, get it out. Effexor is great when you just need a block. You're just too emotional and you just need a break. Mm -hmm. And I got off of it. And so now it's like, oh, I'm ready to, I'm doing therapy twice a week. I'm ready to deal with the emotions. Good. But I'm so used to being like, well, I should up my meds. This isn't normal. Like, I feel too many things. Feeling things right. is bad. I'm kind of depressed. That's not good. And it's like, no, that can be, unless you're in bed all day, you know, from your yep. depression, this can be good. Also, it's you're, you can get into the practice. And this is, I am absolutely saying this is a person who has to, first of all, go to therapy three times a week. Mm -hmm. And my therapist has to remind me of this every right. single time me and too. has for 14 years. Yeah. But it's, that we don't have to, quote unquote, control our feelings. Uh -huh. They're going to be there no matter what right. we do. There's no getting away from it. Even so, if you put pharmaceuticals over them, they're still they're still there and they're festering, which is worse. They're accumulating. Yes. They're fuck, They're just going to wait. That, ba that backseat of the car full of trash <laughs> is yeah. just going to fill up. So you might as well. And you can get the practice of this. What's happening to me right now happens to every single person. And the practice is. Let him come through, observe, allow, and don't make any decisions about like yourself or what you should be doing. No, no sudden moves <laughs> as those feelings come and go, mm -hmm. if possible. It's mm -hmm. not always possible. And then and and then later on, decide what those feelings were a little indicator for. Ah, like, where were you in that moment? Really? Yes. Like what? It, In yeah. Instead, instead of like. Of like criticizing I'm, I'm, and i feel so jealous well then i must be jealous and that means i must love that person and hate that person yeah no no jealousy is like it's just going like oh you must feel a lack of something right it's a mirror parts of your life back on you really yeah. jealousy. oh okay. oh it's all mirror work it's all <sighs> mirror work we're in a fucking fun house of mirrors and stuck inside yeah so it's like i hate the em. feelings just keep coming i hate a maze i hate a maze a maze. I love being amazed, but being in a maze, uh, even a corn maze, <laughs> they're fun. Corn, corn maze. No, that sounds like claustrophobia city to me. I'm it not. Is. I can't even go in fucking dressing rooms. So I feel like a corn <laughs> maze. You know that? So a dressing room made of corn. <laughs> <laughs> if you made me change in that fucking corn maze, I would lose my shit. No, I legit Just wear like under. Take off your dress really quick. I wear underclothes so that I can go to like a weird corner of a store with the weird mirror that no one's around and just like, I'm not flashing anyone. I'm just, I, I just can't go in a fucking dressing room. They stress me out. Huh. Too small. Is that yeah. the situation? I think I have a little claustrophobia. Uh, yeah. And I'm special. A lot. <laughs> you know the thing? Like, and I have this. That, 
I have claustrophobia. Oh, that reminds me. Speaking of not being special, but in a really good way, I listen to, I know I <laughs> mentioned this podcast a lot, but it's because it's like changed my life is the cure for chronic pain, which mm-hmm. you don't have to have chronic pain. But it helps. That's the <laughs> that's the motto. Right? It helps to have chronic pain. But chronic. But it helps. What the point is is that chronic pain is just you holding trauma and hold and like how we say like what we were just talking about is holding instead of having rage. And if you don't let that rage out, if you don't let that sorrow out, if you don't let that trauma out, it's gonna turn into back pain. It's gonna. T- I'm not explaining this well, but no, no, I think it's quite clear. Yeah. So, um, the issues is in the tissues, as they say. <laughs> Um, there was an episode. (laughs) It's a thing that's for people with chronic, like who have chronic pain is that you're keeping your issues in your body. (laughs) You got to make, I think that's bumper sticker. Okay. This is, (laughs) uh, this is episode 112 of the cure for chronic pain. Um, and this, this listener called in and was, or like wrote in and was like, here's my situation. And, and, um, who's the woman who's the host who's now become my friend, Nicole Sachs, um, is, it's an incredible episode of how, how to heal trauma. And this woman had like fibromyalgia and she cured Mm -hmm. her pain and then suddenly was left with the actual emotions from her traumatic childhood. And essentially what it is, is like, you're not special, you know, like you're not any, you feel alone in your trauma. You're not. And that's what like Al-Anon is for, which I plan on going to. And I don't know. It's just a really great episode. 112. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. All that is very true. And it's also, I think a lot of people uh, really go way the fuck out of their way to not feel pain that they're afraid to feel. Yeah. And that was, I think we've talked about that before. My ther- therapist loves saying it already happened. Yeah. You actually already survived. You <gasps> survived the hard part. It's your mind telling you no time has passed. You haven't grown. You're not an adult. You can't handle it's it. You still, can't handle you're it. Still da- you're still in danger. Right. Right? And you're and you're and you have to truly sit there with yourself, allow those feelings and go, is is my life being threatened? No. Am I can I take care of myself? Yes. Have I gotten myself here? Yes. Like, let it it come on through. How long have you ever cried? Three days? No big deal. Just (laughs) rehydrate. I thought you were going to say three minutes. And I was like, yes, that's that's the longest time I've ever cried. Oh, no. You do a long weekend of weeping. It's almost though like, and this is going to sound sappy, like Elvis has given me another gift in that I've been crying over missing him and what he meant to me a lot. But it's like a healing cry, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's been and then I get to hug a puppy a cookie puppy while it's happening. So it's just a, yeah, it's like as much as it hurts and it's hard, it's like another gift. Well, also you're, that's just real life. Like you're in the game here when you're doing stuff like that and actually feeling it. It's like you, I remember you saying when I very first met you, if Elvis dies, I'm going to die. Yes. And then I was just like, shit, I already started this podcast with her. Get out of it. <laughs> that was a I bit extreme. Really felt, yeah. <laughs> I know. No, no, I'm making fun of you, but no, no, no. I knew, yes. I knew, I knew what you were trying to tell me was this is like, cause, cause it was when he was starting to go to the vent all the time. And yeah. it was this thing that I know that you 
were like pre-stressing. Yes. And that's what we do to ourselves. I do it too. We all do it where you, you look at the thing and you go, I can't lose this. I, if I, if I lose this, A, B, C, D, and E, and F will happen to me. Yeah. Which is you telling yourself scary stories because you think it's going to help you control the world. Right. And it doesn't. And I did have, you know, my old therapist who ended up actually taking her life. So that was like, which she told me, which I don't think she maybe under herself didn't understand was you've survived all these other things since then. Why? Because you have tenacity. And by the, and when you actually get there, you're, you just deal with it and you're able to deal with it. And I think it was this thing of like, well, what I told Elvis is I need 16 years. So back then at 11 years, I couldn't have handled it. You know, it was too soon. 16 years is a gift for a cat's life or an animal's life. And so I got through it. Yeah. You, and you, he gave you enough time. And then you kind of got to the thing I was talking to my therapist about this morning is it's like when you have a thing that means a lot to you that you can tell you have to let go of or you, you owe an idea mm-hmm. of a thing, um, an idea of a person that you kind of have to let go of that, you, that it served you. The idea of this person served you for a little while, but you realizing holding on to it as this thing it actually isn't is not serving you. Yeah. So and the not thing I was allowing. The, the other thing to have its own, to be its own being and to be what it is going to be. And you have no control and that's big and scary. Well, my point is that basically in, on your side of things, letting go of that, you don't just let go of it and like drop it and whatever. I said, it's kind of like, it feels to me like that thing in Raiders of the Lost Ark where you have to replace the mm. idol with the bag of sand. You have to like basically ease off this thing slowly and then have something else better than a bag of sand to replace it with so that that, you know, so that little pedestal doesn't drop into the ground and release the giant boulder so you kind of have like you have to go go easy on yourself because you needed that thing for a reason you projected onto that thing for a reason whatever your situation yeah you have to give yourself kind of like the love to go okay you just need something that's fine get figure something else out well i think that something for me now is just gratitude which i think is a good place I, I, i'm not good at it but i'm striving to make a be gratitude you know i'm like good. reminding That's myself constantly that yeah. it's gratitude that it's gratitude it's like and there's a reason that you're going through the shit you're going no there's not there's no reason it's all fucking crazy you know this world is has no point and no meaning so the best thing you can do is like is take care of yourself and gratitude is a really great way to do that you know, and there's no meaning. If you're focusing on gratitude, there's plenty of meaning because the meaning is what you give it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be some kind of like God's over here handing you a bunch of like a cornucopia of fruit. Right. It's just random shit that you can give meaning to by going, I appreciate that this random set of circumstances happened to me. Yeah. Like it's just a hard I, thing to get to. And and there's a lot of grief to dig out, your, dig yourself out. I'm, I'm not talking about myself with a cat. I'm talking about people who lose children and people who go through monumental trauma and and don't see an end to it, you know? Well, sure. Sure. That's But that I think that's like, th- that's what I'm saying. Monumental trauma is, it is like the price of ad- admission. Right. That's what we're here for. We're never going to escape it. Yeah. And it's, and contextually, 
yes, there are people who have loss that we can't believe. That's what this podcast is about, telling stories of loss that you can't believe. Mm. But contextually, we experience similar things in in smaller ways, but to us in similar ways. Yes. So it is that kind of thing where you can't you know, you can't get into a habit of comparing trauma right. because there's because the context means it's all big to the person that it's happening to. Yeah. If there's nothing bigger happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can't don't dismiss your experiences by going, oh, but this there's this other thing and it's way worse. Right. It's just yeah. like, hey. It's bad for everybody. It's bad for everybody in lots of fucking ways. It really is. Steven's clapping. It really is. <laughs> Amen. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, wait. Let me cap that with something nice. I wish you would. Okay, so here's something nice that'll that'll cap this off just for talking about gratitude, talking about whatever. Because I think we don't get... I forget this part mm-hmm. of things, mm-hmm. of, of what we're doing. Yeah, me so too. This was a this was a piece of mail that got dropped off. Um, along along with a bunch of other mail because we don't pick up our mail very yeah, often. Yeah, we don't have an here, office here, anymore. Here in quarantine, <laughs> yeah. we're all on our little weird islands. So I opened this box and there was a car. There's beautiful things in it and there's two of everything. So you've got some cool shit coming your Yay, way. Yay, I love it. Love presents. All right. And I opened this card and it says, uh, Karen and Georgia, I want to thank you for literally changing my life. <laughs> After your shout out of this is actually happening in August, my audience quadrupled overnight. After eight years producing this little show by myself with a microphone, microphone, a walk-in closet, and a vision, you've allowed me to do the impossible, quit my job. (laughs) Become do it. Become a Wondery original and devote myself full time to my true passion, fulfilling a decade long dream I never thought would come true at a time when everything was in flux. You can't imagine how much this has meant to me. Here is a very small token of my appreciation for your generous words and your pioneering talent with overwhelming gratitude. Thank you. Wit. And that's the host, Whit Misseldine, the host of This Is Actually Happening. An incredible podcast. Some very fancy drinking chocolates and fancy biscuit things. It's like a little gourmet box. And then some real cute This Is Actually Happening stickers. Love it. Love the design. Um, So... I I don't wit. I hope you're not offended that I just read that out loud, but it really I opened it last night and then just laid on the bed staring Aww. at it because it made me so happy. I thought it was so so nice. Well, his being offended about you reading it uh, will then equal and cancel out our offense that it's not on exactly right and instead of wondery, <laughs> but that's okay. But hey, wondery's a great place and we get it. Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. I love that. Right? It's been so weird because since we're not touring, we I feel like that was... I didn't realize that that was our access to the audience and to the listeners. And not just, you know, at the live shows, but afterwards at the meet and greet where we meet a hundred yes. fucking incredible people that we get to have interactions with and remember that we're talking to, <laughs> to someone other than each other. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so I yes. kind of miss out. I think we miss out on that a lot, but... um but it's there and we have to, you know, there has to be a point to all of this because it's very, <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, <laughs> there has to be a point. <laughs> it's Man, more there than has just, to be. <laughs> it more, it's more than just getting on the iTunes top 20. It's got, there's got to be something else or. Hey, listen, as we all know, uh, that's completely manipulable, manipulable. It uh, is. 
it's a that's a that's an algorithm you can fuck with if you so choose to. And if you so choose to and want to rate, review, and subscribe to all your oh, favorite podcasts. Of which. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh well, if you do need something to take you out of your trauma and just like distract you, Vince and I have been like going back to the terrible like early two thousand, not politically correct anymore movies legally blonde holds the fuck up does it really i don't know if i've ever watched it <gasps> karen oh, okay. Vince had it either, and i was like do you want to watch something else watch something else he's like no th- let's watch this and then we started watching legally blonde too doesn't hold up <laughs> but um and then also mcgruber which i had never seen oh yeah which is just it's so um leslie nielsen style ridiculousness i saw that Definitely saw it in the theater. I may have gone to a, like a premiere brag, party. Brag, a, brag. <laughs> um, this is a bragging corner. Red carpet. Karen, oh, Karen on the red all carpet. Of my best friend, McGruber. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's really <laughs> stupid, fun, funny, you know? Yes. And so, and he- there's truly no better person. Like no cooler man and no funnier person than Will Forte. I mean, oh. he genuinely he is, is he cool? a good fucking. He's the best. He's genuinely nice and <sighs> genuinely cool Love and the it. kind of person that. Yeah, he's just he's a he's a true uh he's a true gentleman and. T- talent we love hearing who's funnier that. than that what about the um i think you should leave sketch where he's the old man on the airplane did you see that no oh oh from snl you, no no have you watched tim robinson's sketch show i think you should leave not the whole thing oh yeah I need but i love tim robinson i need tim you Robbins? to get off the mic right now <laughs> tim robinson get from away. detroiters which is one of the <laughs> best shows on the planet yeah and uh yes please go can I tell watch you, that I sketch a, like the second we're done? I have it's a the, little, one of the funniest sketches ever. Okay, I'll watch it. I have a little crush on Sam Richardson. Do you know that um, from Detroiters? Oh, yeah. He's a beautiful man. I saw him. Sorry, another brag. But I saw him in like 2012, I think. When oh, wow. He was at Second City. Wow. In a show where he was so fucking good. Like he was such a standout in this show. And everyone yeah. in the group was really good. 2012. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Long ago. Katie Rich was in it too, who was a uh a, a very talented writer and a cool lady. Um there's a bunch of and apparently Tim Robinson was also in that group that but he just wasn't there that yeah. night. Um but yeah. Well, Tim Robinson is he's a hot. He's I a hot piece. saw him at we were at I was at a dance. <laughs> it was the trilogy dance night of like the cure and like all these like that timey, you know, music. Yeah. But like, was cur- it the current two years ago? That's because that's recent because the last year doesn't count Um, at a dance yes. night. And I was there with Emily and Kumail, who are braggy brag, who are friends with him. And he walked up and I went and everyone was like, Oh, Sam's here. And I went, yay. Like we were friends. And then I was like, Oh fuck. He doesn't know who I am. Turn away. And I was so embarrassed. So embarrassed. What what was his reaction? He must have laughed. I don't even think he acknowledged me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like we were like, Oh, he's here. Nope. You don't know him. You don't know him. You don't know him. He's a fan. Shut, shut up. Hey. It's I think it's cool to fan out on people. I'm who, hot right now. Yeah, that's pretty embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Stop it. 
I feel it. Stop it. Okay. I was going to tell you about that. I just started this podcast. Um, it's called Evil by Design. It's yet another hit from the CBC. They don't give a fuck. They just keep making uh, hit podcasts. Love it. Um, and this was recommended to me by uh, none other than Letter Kenny's Jacob Tierney, who uh, has very good taste, mm-hmm. has become my very best quarantine friend. <laughs> um, and uh, I ha- take his ideas and talk about them all the time on this podcast and never give him credit. <laughs> and I know he listens. So Aww. I'm finally I'm finally giving him credit. Letter, um, Letter Kenny. This, great show. Letter Kenny. Everyone's favorite show. It's season nine, I believe Jesus. they're in. Yeah, just they're they're legendary yeah. Canadian comedy people. But this podcast, Evil by Design, is about this designer named, I believe it's Peter Nygaard. Mm-hmm. And this fucking guy is like the Canadian version of Jeffrey Epstein times <gasps> a thousand. Oh, that's like way more victims it's super crazy and i've i think i'm on episode two right now it's a super mind-blowing story and really awful murder by design Um, evil by design evil by design yeah all right i'm into that because yeah i mean i'm not into it it's horrible but i've never heard of him that sounds cool yeah did you so there's euphoria is on a break, it seems like, that incredible right. show on HBO, but they had two, a two part special, and one is just about Rue, and then the other is just about Jules. And I think mm-hmm. she, I haven't watched that one yet. She's in therapy, just one on one. And then the one with Rue, with Zendaya. So it's her with her like AA sponsor, Coleman Domingo, who's this incredible actor and deserves a fucking Emmy for this, both of them. It's one of the best hours of TV and it's so powerful. I had to stop because they're talking about addiction and depression and feeling worthless in that. And if you have those issues, I say you should watch it. If you have if you have those issues and family members who don't get it, which is such a, you know, a normal thing, which perpetuates this cycle because you feel worthless. So you might as well keep using. Yeah, um, it is so powerful and the and it's so incredible and it touched me in such an incredible way. So Euphoria, the special episode one, and I'm so excited. I mean, I needed a break before episode two if it's it's just as fucking powerful, which I'm sure it is. Because Hunter is such an incredible performer. So like, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just so, it's so heavy and incredible. That whole, I mean, they put together an ensemble that can't be beat. Totally. I mean, it feels like it's supposed to be a teenager's show, but it's fucking not. It's... I watched it because I just wanted to hang out with some teenagers. And <laughs> and here I am in the midst of very adult problems and situations. Yeah. And this, ain't, this ain't no fucking Saved by the Bell. I don't know. What's the equivalent these days? <laughs> <laughs> I think you nailed it. Uh, I do love the makeup, though. I really oh. it's like that kind of show that gives you an it's like what do you want an unbelievable powerful and heart-wrenching storyline okay here do you want really good visuals like just everybody being a little bit perfectly beautiful in their own flawed way but that also helps the narrative of the characters because you're like oh this is the kind of person you are i get Mm -hmm. it which makeup which everyone knows makeup can do (laughs) that's very true (laughs) um yeah what else what do you guys i think that's all i got I'm listening to the audiobook for um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which I've listened to before. And I just, it's such a nice distraction. It's like a fairy tale. It's like a dark fairy tale almost. I highly recommend it. Yeah. 
I am actually reading a book that a friend of the show, Dave Anthony's wife, Heather, gave me. And um, hi, she's also a listener and friend of the hi. show. Um, and uh, therapist. Heather- she's a psychologist, too, isn't she? Yes, she is. So, so cool. that's, that's how she's married to Dave Anthony. <laughs> I'm totally joking. Um, she gave me this beautiful set of books as a... Um, as a housewarming gift that was, I think you probably have seen them at my house. They're from the fifties and it's murders from Los Angeles, murders from Chicago, murders from, remember that? Did you ever see that? And they're like, is it it a time life book? (laughs) No, no, uh, no, but it's almost like the 1952 version of that for almost like true, a true crime series. So they have the, almost like the library plastic wrap on the outside. Yeah, I love that plastic wrap. I kind of, I didn't have a book around and I needed like actual book to fall asleep with. Yeah. Like can't, I can't do audio because then I have a very strange dream. (laughs) Um, So I pulled this book off the shelf. I was like, why am I not actually reading these? I'm just using them as like decoration. Oh, I have a hundred of those. Yeah. Yeah. So I pulled down the Los Angeles one and it's so good. It's just true crime stories. And from I think it's like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s in Los Angeles. And it got I was three chapters in and now it's on Charles Desmond. Yes. The director shot by I did that for a live show in L.A. Right. Yes. Yes. And it's Norma Desmond was at his house. Norma Remember Desmond the whole thing? was na- was named Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard was named after these characters. So it's something Desmond something. William, oh, oh, De- w- William Desmond Taylor. Yes. Thank you. Shot William by- Desmond Taylor is his professional name, but that's not his actual real name. Did you know any of this part? Probably I back think- then that I forgot. Now what? This he basically had a mysterious life before he became a director in Hollywood in the 20s that no one knew about Wow! And that came to light when this thing came. It was it, it's just the kind of thing where so the um person who put the story together, it's just basically all the news stories. So the, it's almost like any theory, any whatever yeah. what people said. It's not like gossip. Here, Here's a here's a thing that came out and people got all into and then it just disappeared. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, that his brother was actually his his dad um butler oh <laughs> you know those stories where it's like his sister was actually his mom and raised and <laughs> yes. she got pregnant at a young age and so she was family that secret that doesn't yes. make sense. yeah <laughs> this has i'm only like a little bit into it but anyway okay. cool. it's just kind of a real good um and I don't think anyone can buy this book because it seems like a fucking <laughs> great recommendation. Yeah, it's one of the worst recommendations I've ever done. Thanks, Heather. Thank you for the lovely gift. Oh, I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's all I. Oh, <laughs> my new my new meditation is just videos of people up close painting their nails. The most okay. um, ASMR relaxing OPI on Instagram, the lovely nail polish company has. Really trying to get free stuff. I'm absolutely fucking lutely. I'm trying to get free shit from OPI. (laughs) They have these like close up nail polish, polishing perfect in the lines, and it's just, it's just so relaxing. Also, 
How do they do it? Because every time I go to paint my own nails... Yeah, you look like a fucking 10-year-old child. For real. It's sad. <laughs> except for like uh, my old mean trick. You. When we, I mean everyone. Everybody. But my old trick when we would do live shows is I would just do silver. Because you you can yeah. get away with silver. Everywhere. You, no one can really tell. And it looks a little bit fancy. But like if you actually can see up close, it's just like... I'm just basically painting the tops of my fingers. I actually... I'm, I hate... To, no brag. I'm really good at it. Because it is one of my like anti-stress things. And then I peel it off. And that's my other anti-stress thing is peeling nail polish. It's like my zit popping video. No, but doesn't that mess up your nails? Absolutely. Do, okay. do, do. So does, but stress messes up my brain. And so <laughs> to pick one or the other. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Those are your only two choices. And so, that's yeah, it. I guess you have to and that's that. it. Okay. And I have nothing else. We're solving problems for everybody (laughs) on this show. And then we'll get out of your hair. Uh, And then we're going to get out of your hair. Speaking of hair and getting out of it, should we do exactly right news? (laughs) I thought you were going to do another plug. (laughs) Yes, we should absolutely do. Guys, just here's the thing. If you want to know what's going on the network, it's getting to the point now where we have so many podcasts that we would really love it if you'd go on to exactlyright.com because there is where you will find most of the information. I think it's exactlyrightmedia.com. Stephen. Media? Stephen, have you ever gone on our website before? (laughs) Is it good? It's on my homepage, actually. Oh. Is it pretty? It's beautiful. It's all the rainbow colors. It's on his homepage, Stephen. Uh, yeah, exactly right. Media.com. Great. Exactly right. Media. Yes. And so we and then also like on iTunes, there's like a you can click on um, on networks. And so if you go to exactly right, the network, it shows, you know, how to work things. You're you're probably in your 20s. <laughs> I'm the one that doesn't. <laughs> but anyway, what what we're saying is this part we want. We, we want to make it fresh and fun yeah. for you. But but also and it's quick. just basically it's like reading the TV guide. That's right. That's not the TV oh. guide. Uh, well, on this podcast, we'll kill you. The fucking hit podcast, Aaron and Aaron cover. I think this is fascinating. The ins and outs of organ transplantation, which as a as a donor, as a potential donor one day, do you have the donor? Oh, did you mark that? You marked that on your license? I did. Take whatever nice. you need. Um, why do I fucking care? Uh, I think that's just a fascinating topic. Like, yeah, how is. does it work? And then when you hear the stories of people like, did you see the photo of the, the, the mom and dad listening to the heart of the person who got their son's heart when he passed away and they're oh, crying wow. and he just like let them take a stethoscope and listen to their son's heart in his chest. Sorry, when, did this just happen to you? <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs> it just touched me. I saw the video like or like a photo of it. We should put it on the Instagram. It's so beautiful. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. You you look you look well. I just don't. You're we're talking about this podcast, but you're just talking about a thing you remembered of that happening. Uh huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought basically you listen to the podcast and then on it they mention this thing. No, it just I was confused. No, I was I was too clearly. But this podcast will kill you. Excellent podcast. Also, um, because it's Black History Month, um, Millie and Danielle on I Saw What You Did are covering um, Black directors, actors, other artists in the film industry. So this week, they're doing the films To Sleep With Anger from 1990 and Penitentiary, um, which is from 1979. Um, 
I saw what you did has a five star rating on it. Hey, Octane, it's like you guys really nice. Know how to rate, review, guys. and subscribe. It's pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> and then um, in the merch store on myfavoritemurder.com, fucking Denton and the merch team turned this shit around from last week and made unwashed and unabashed pre-sale <laughs> merch so it's a really cool design it's perfect for quarantine there's t-shirts long sleeve shirts hoodies um and they're available p- for pre-sale so fucking let let the world know ain't no there's Get, no shame let the other people in your house know <laughs> that's right <laughs> that you're in quarantine yeah baby okay. all right should we get into this thing? Absolutely. Let's do it. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder and here's the important note that promo code is all lowercase so go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level that's shopify.com slash murder again don't forget the code is all lowercase goodbye if you're like me you're always looking for a story to dive into whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve the key to getting hooked is the details i need rich visuals and intricate storylines and june's journey has that and more june's journey is a mobile mystery game that follows june parker a daring young woman on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder this is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as june herself Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Okay, so it was uh, on February 1st, the beginning of Black History Month. I was, of course, on Twitter and I stumbled on this thread that was actually really pretty fascinating. It was started by a woman whose Twitter handle is at T Spoonie, T-E-E underscore Spoonie, Spoonie with an I-E. And her name's Tiana slash 
Crip Gossip Girl. And she wrote, when y'all inevitably talk about Harriet Tubman this month, let's not leave out the fact that she was disabled. Hmm. And then goes on to explain how Harriet Tubman had epilepsy, possibly narcolepsy. So when she was um, moving people along the Underground Railroad, there were times where she would actually say, and if I like if I basically have one of my spells go on without (gasps) me. Wow. And this was a thing she had to deal with basically all her life. And so. As I got into this, into this thread, and basically, let me read the rest of these posts that this woman wrote, because it's pretty fascinating. She wrote, and if anyone questions you about it, ask them what they think having regular seizures as a result of head trauma that cause you to lose consciousness for any amount of time with no warning is. And then she wrote, and also, please don't do that weird inspiration thing y'all do with disabled people. She was amazing because of her achievements, not because she achieved it, quote unquote, in spite being disabled. Mm. So. Basically, it opens this discussion, which is really cool because then it's a combination of people going, I had no idea. How come we never get taught anything like this? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with the American school system? (laughs) And then there's a bunch of other people who know about it and are adding to it. And so apparently from learning from this thread, which is pretty amazing, she was hit in the head (gasps) with with like a, a weight um some kind of a measuring weight by a slave owner who was trying to throw this weight at an escaping boy who who was being slave traded. And she basically was trying to get in the middle so he could get away. And she got hit in the head with this weight. And then she basically it was like brain trauma. And so for the rest of her life, she had seizures or and or narcolepsy. But uh, often she would describe them as spells Mm -hmm. and she interpreted what she would see and the things that would happen while she was out uh, unconscious as messages from God. Wow. So it actually, there's no in spite of her disability because it actually was, you know, the thing that kind of inspired her and guided her um, while she was doing all of this amazing work. Then people start talking about all this other stuff that she did and how she was a general. She was made a general and she Mm. won this battle, like when the only women to win a battle. And uh, it was just, it's a really cool thread of a bunch of people who were the people who have the information are thrilled to share it. Totally. And then there's a bunch of other people going, how come Twitter's the one place I learned, <laughs> you know, black history the most? I mean, whatever. So in the yeah. middle of this thread, someone whose uh, Twitter handle is at Copony, so C-O underscore pony wrote, and it was <laughs> hashtag no coup 2021. They wrote, I learned about this guy today. Epic, beyond hero, war injuries and still ha- helped save France from the Nazis. And then she posted this, a picture and like this little thing that was basically a post from Instagram. And so I looked at it and it was someone I have never seen before and never heard the name of before. So I figured it would be a good time to tell you about a man named Eugene Ballard, the world's first black fighter pilot. Karen, fucking right? killing it. It was, I mean, look, some good things happen on social media. We have to remember. (laughs) And it still is. It's pretty mind blowing that I'm a 50 year old woman and still learning about things like this. Sure. So it's kind of exciting. Um, And I appreciate all those people that participated in this insane epic thread that goes on and on. I mean, there's so there's a bunch of suggestions in here, too, of other people where I was just like, all right, this one down too. (laughs) Love it. 
So here's some of the sources is a book called All Blood Runs Red, The Legendary Life of Eugene Ballard, Boxer, Pilot, Soldier, Spy by Phil Keith and Tom Clavin. Clavin, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum website, which is a legit.edu, a website called The Bitter Southerner. There was an article on that called The Vanishing Stories of the Ballard Brothers by an, a journalist named Jeremy Redman. Um, the PBS series American Experience has an article on the PBS website called The Two Lies of Eugene Ballard. And of course, the Wikipedia. And there is a an article in the Sag Harbor Express, a journalist named Annette Hinkle called Meet the Amazing Eugene Ballard. Great. All right. So what's interesting is that if you took one of the elevators um, at Rockefeller Center at any point between 1954 and 1959, there was a chance that you could be standing next to a great American hero. But it was a secret. Nobody knew about it until December of 1959, when the producers at the Today Show that still had its original host... Uh, learned that just two months prior, on October 9th, 1959, a local man named Eugene Ballard had just been named a Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, which is France's highest award for military service. Wait, so are you saying he was, he was the elevator operator? Yes, I am. Wow. Yes, I am. Fuck. <laughs> okay. So... So the producers of the Today Show realize that not only does this man live in New York, but he's the elevator operator in the very building where the Today Show is filmed. Sorry, I spoiled that. <laughs> it's OK. That's all right. That's what everyone else is doing, too. So it's fine. Okay. So they go to Eugene Ballard and they ask him to be a guest on the Today Show. So on December 22nd, 1959... Eugene Ballard takes the stage wearing his elevator operator uniform. Uh, Wait, should I? I'm going to send you. I'm going to post this picture. Look at look at the picture because there's a beautiful black and white photo of him and the original host of the Today Show. Okay, let me look at that. So he so you see he wears his uniform on stage and he brings his military medals (gasps) and all his military awards that he's ever won in a display case. And he sits down and begins to tell the host all about his life. And America finally meets a hero that no one's ever heard of before, because it turns out that this man, not he not only fought in not one, but two world wars. But he is the world's first black fighter pilot. And this is almost 20 years after World War II ended. And so he's been oh yeah, under yeah, the radar this whole time. Com- entirely. And this piece of his life that's so incredible is truly a drop in the bucket to what I'm about to tell you. Okay. So let me tell you all about the life of Eugene Ballard. So his father, William Ballard, is born into slavery in Columbus, Georgia in 1863. Um, but two years later, the abolition of slavery happens in 1865. And so he becomes a free man, a free baby. And in 1882, at age 19, William marries Josephine Yokoli Thomas, who's a 17-year-old indigenous woman who is from the Creek tribe who lives nearby. Mm. Um, Together, they have 10 children. And Eugene is the seventh child. He's the seventh son. So his father always thought that he was lucky. He was lucky and special. 
And this family is very poor and the conditions at home make it hard to care for 10 kids. Three of the children don't make it past infancy. Mm. Um, but William is a very strong man. He's a very, he's a very determined worker. He's six foot five, weighs about 250 pounds, um, takes any job that anyone will hire him for. And he starts working at the local docks and in the warehouses along the river. And he gets the nickname Big Ox for, of course, his stature, but also for his work ethic. In the 1890s, um, William gets steady work under a white cotton broker named William C. Bradley. And Bradley actually treats William well by 1890s standards, mm -hmm. which causes the rest of the white workers to be very angry right. and to and to resent William um, because he's favored and he makes the same wages that white workers make. And that so wow. that makes these white men mad. 1890. That's like progressive for those standards. Yeah, it is. In 1901, young Eugene starts school at Columbus's 28th Street School. Much like the rest of the community, this school suffers from a lack of money and supplies. Um, Eugene spends five years there. He learns to read and write and do math. But he eventually he gets the equivalent of a second grade education. Um, the year after he starts school in August of 1902, his mother dies suddenly at just 37 years old, right before Eugene's seventh birthday. Mm -hmm. So the older Boulard children have to take on the household chores. They have to watch the younger kids and they all have to get jobs so they can help support support the family. Um when he's young, Eugene describes himself as as trusting as a chickadee and friendly. And he, quote, loved everybody and thought everybody loved me. Um, he plays with kids of all races in his neighborhood. But as they grow up, get older, he starts to realize not everyone is actually his friend. And soon the white kids stop playing with him and his father and his siblings have to teach him about the racial divides and injustices in this country. Mm. Um so because Eugene's father, William's background, his people are actually from Martinique. Um, so they have, you know, there's a lot of exposure to French culture. Right. And um, his father has a, a utopian view of France. Even though he's never visited the country, he gives his kids the impression that in France, all people are treated equally regardless of their race. And Eugene, who craves equality and that that idea of that... Um, very fair and just utopia. He longs to travel to France. So around this time, there's a man at Eugene's father, William's work named Billy Stevens. And he is the one that hates William the most. He gives him the worst and hardest tax tasks, hoping to break him. But William's spirit cannot be broken. He happily does his job. He carries his stoke wisdom home to his kids. He says, if I have to hit Stevens, I want you all to be good children. Always show respect to each and every one, white and black, and make them respect you. Mm. Go to school as long as you can. Never look for a fight. I mean, never. But if you are attacked or your honor is attacked unjustly, you fight and you fight and you keep fighting, even if you die for your rights, because it will be a glorious death. Mm. So William's at good attitude in the face of mistreatment just makes Billy Stevens even angrier. So on one day in 1904, Stevens approaches William, accusing him of um, basically tattling to the 
to the big boss about Steven's behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so William decides he's going to ignore Billy. Um, Billy takes that as disrespect, grabs an iron hook <gasps> that it's used for carrying cotton bales. And he whacks William on the side of the head, leaving a huge bloody gash. William Ballard stumbles to his feet. He picks Stevens up over his head and throw, <laughs> throws him into a cellar. Um, Whoa. Stevens lands with such an intense thud that the surrounding workers think he's dead, but he's not. He's hurt. And of course, he's very badly embarrassed. Mm -hmm. So William goes to the the big boss, Bradley, tells him what happens. Bradley tells William to go home, lay low. He's going to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And Bradley has a doctor check on Stevens to make sure he's okay. But and he tells Stevens that if he doesn't keep quiet about the situation, he'll lose his job. But there were too many witnesses. Word travels fast. And soon an angry, drunken lynch mob mm-hmm. gathers at a nearby saloon and heads for the Bullard's home. Fuck. So, of course, William's anticipating this mob because this is standard fare in the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. Um, he directs all the kids to hide under their bed while he keeps post behind the front door with a loaded shotgun mm-hmm. in his hand. And this drunken mob surrounds the house. They're screaming. They're banging on the doors. And of course, Eugene is scared to death. Eventually, the family, the lights are off. The family's silent. So the mob eventually figures that the Ballards have run off and they leave. And this has a this moment and this fear and witnessing such a hideous thing, of course, marks Eugene forever. Yeah. So he's hell bent now on finding a place where, quote, white people treated color people like human beings. So he makes several attempts to run away. But his dad catches him every almost every time. Um, but in 1906, at age 11, he sells his goat and cart for a dollar fifty, packs up f- some food and a few belongings, and hikes his way along the train tracks headed east. Jesus! But before his dad can catch up with him, Eugene meets a. a kind family they give him a dollar and that enables him to buy a train ticket to atlanta 11 11 years old and he finally makes his getaway so in atlanta he finds um a number of odd jobs basically you know making himself some cash so he um he uh he gets a job he starts hanging around some stables because there's a lot of horse racing in, in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Um, and he works there long enough. And then he basically gets moved up to being a jockey because um, he's little yeah. and he can, he can ride a horse. So he becomes a jockey <laughs> and he's that young. Isn't that awesome? Um, and he's good at it. He also helps out in a barber shop. He's very charming and smart young man. Mm-hmm. He, the, so strangers like him and, um, they're very kind to him. So uh, basically, on his father's advice, he makes people respect him with his friendly demeanor and his hard work. And that helps him survive. One day in his early teens, he has a chance meeting with a band of English travelers who uh, are outcast wanderers themselves. So they welcome him into their band with open arms. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's hopeful that these Englishmen will take him with them when they go back to England, which would bring him one step closer to getting to France. Um, but then when they tell Eugene that they're planning to stay in America for another couple years, um, he's disappointed. He parts ways with them, wanders around Georgia a little while longer, working odd jobs. Um, then a friend tells him if he can get to Virginia, he can get onto a big ship 
that is that'll be traveling overseas. Um, so in 1912, he's now 16 years old and he stows away one night in the undercarriage of a dining car on the seaboard line passenger and freight train heading to Virginia. So he holds on to the underneath of the dining car, gets himself. <laughs> Isn't that fucking insane? Oh, my God. He's got a vision. Yeah, that's what's cool. Yeah. So so he gets to Virginia. He finds um, uh, there's a black family by the name of Hughes who he meets, who gives him a few bucks, tells him that he can find a ship in the city of Newport News. Uh-huh. So he hops another train, rides underneath the car again, makes his way to Newport News, Virginia. When he gets to the docks, he finds a crew loading goods onto a large ship. And one of the crewmen mistake Eugene for being a worker. So Eugene uses that opportunity, pretends to be a worker, sneaks on board, hides hides between two bales of cotton for two hours until the ship departs. But three hours later, the ship docks again in another Virginia port. So he's like, God, thinks he's going to get there. And then he doesn't. He ends up telling one of the crewmen about that's what he's trying to do. And the crewman decides to help him. So he points Eugene in the direction of a ship called the Marta Russ. And he says that ship's crew is German, but they'll be making other stops on their way and they can use help on board. And sure enough, the crew on the Marta Russ welcome Eugene's help. And on March 4th, 1912, Eugene finally sets sail for Europe. So by law, the shipping crew has to drop stowaways off at the next port they reach, which in the Marta Russ's case is Aberdeen, Scotland. Um, but in true Eugene fashion, he spends the two week voyage winning the hearts of the German crew. He's a hard worker and he's a quick learner. And he ends up picking up, um, the German language from his crewmates. All right. Yeah. So by the time they reach Scotland, members of the crew chip in to send him off with clothes, supplies, and the captain pays him $25 in wages. Wow. Which is huge. And today's money? A lot. A couple hundred. I didn't look it up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the Scots receive him well. Of course, they speak English, but their accent is very difficult for Eugene and everyone else on the planet to understand. <laughs> I, spe- I bet especially back then. I bet like the conversion rate of the Scottish accent was just yes. incomprehensible. There was no outside world to kind of expose them to. Or <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Because most Scottish people had never met a black person before. They all called him Jack Johnson after the famous boxer. Yeah. Jack Johnson. Yeah. Um, Eugene takes it as a compliment and continues to charm his way from Aberdeen to Glasgow. And there he finds himself a cheap room and he befriends some con men who are running a three card money game outside on the street. And he gets a job as their lookout. So he whistles whenever the cops come around. And um, basically, he's just making friends. So in August of 1912, after five months of saving up cash, he gets himself to Liverpool because um, he heard he can make more money there. Um, he eventually he tries to get some jobs. He eventually gets work unloading large slabs of frozen mutton off of incoming ships, which is really brutal work yeah, and um, really exhausting. But he ends up being able to join the Steve Dorr Union which is Stevedores and longshoremen are 
similar, but one involves a crane. Right. I think <laughs> I, I looked it up and I was just like, sorry, what? What? And that's a disgrace because my grandfather was a longshoreman. Whoa. So I, I apologize to longshoremen everywhere. But um, <laughs> he was one of the two. I don't know if a crane was involved. Okay. Um, but he is for this job. He is in a union, so, which means he's making good money. Huge. And also he's just getting stronger and stronger because it's backbreaking labor. Totally. During the holiday season of 20 of 1912, Eugene goes to Birkenhead, where Liverpool's main amusement park is, and he spots a game where um, players throw a ball at someone who pops their head through different holes in the canvas. So it's basically human whack-a-mole <laughs> facing the people throwing the ball. Oy. And if the person gets hit three times, the player wins. So Eugene gets an idea because knowing how white people are, um, he basically tells the guy running the game, they'll get more business if the person popping their head through the sheet is black. Wow. It's an upsetting Sad. suggestion, yeah. but of course it's right. And many more people play the game. They, it brings in a lot more business for the attraction and Eugene makes bank. So he basically is taking advantage yeah. of the racism and ignorance and making money off of it. He's actually able to quit his job uh, on the, on the docks and he makes triple, hmm. um, at this game, what he made just by working weekends at the amusement park. Wow. So um, he uses his new free time to explore Liverpool and his favorite um, place to go is Baldwin's boxing gym. And he's taken in by the atmosphere, captivated by the boxers who are training for their fights. He convinces the gym owner, Chris Baldwin, to let him work there during the week um, and telling him there's no task too small for him to do. He'll do whatever the guy needs him to do. Mm -hmm. By February of 1913, Baldwin is so impressed with Eugene's work ethic that he invites him to start training and sparring with the boxers. So Eugene trains as a lightweight under the name The Sparrow, because even though he's light, he tells Baldwin he can fly like a bird. Damn. So Eugene wins his first 10 round fight and then he catches the eye of a, an actual pro boxer who's at the at the fight, Aaron Lister Brown, um, who's called Dixie Kid. So the Dixie Kid takes Eugene under his wing and has him join his touring company of boxers. Mm. So. Eugene agrees and um, with Baldwin's blessing and also because Baldwin is Eugene's technical manager, which means he gets a cut of Eugene, Eugene's wages. Um, that means that Eugene gets to the Sparrow gets to follow his team to London. Um, he moves into the Holborn neighborhood of London, um, where many other black ex expatriates live and work in all facets of the art arts. Um, Eugene's winning personality and ability to perform earns him a spot in Belle Davis's Freedman's Pickaninnies, which is a popular traveling slapstick troupe um, of black performers. And this, along with the boxing, pl pays him well, and the job enables him to travel all over uh, the globe, basically. He goes from St. Petersburg to Moscow to Berlin, and finally he gets to go to Paris. Nice. So as he imagined, he instantly falls in love with the city. It's late um, 1913 and uh, the Dixie Kid arranges a boxing match for Eugene in Paris that enables him to officially move there. He continues boxing in Paris. Um, I think he moved up a couple weight classes. And he also picks up a side gig working at a local music hall. 
So between the good wages, good friends, fewer run-ins with racists, Eugene finds himself living the life he's always dreamed of. So when w, uh, when World War One begins yeah. in August of 1914, Eugene feels compelled to serve the country that's given him the life he dreamed of living. Hmm. So on October 19th, 1914, at the age of 19 years old, Eugene enlists in the French Foreign Legion, which is a branch of the French military that non-citizens are permitted to join. He's assigned to the 3rd Marching Regiment and serves as a machine gunner. This regiment is named the Swallows of Death. And this is where he picks up his nickname, the Black Swallow of Death. Um, in 1915, he fights in some of the worst and bloodiest battles in World War One. He's at the front at Somme. He's at Artois. And he's in the second battle of Champagne. And there's um, there's a couple uh, places uh, like um that list out I was I was reading this but it was so much information mm -hmm. but some of these fights there was like an 80% death rate like oh the death God. rates were all really high he survived these horrible battles kind of against the odds yeah. it's crazy um and he fights with such honor and such vigor that he's transferred from the Foreign Legion to one of the standard French army units, the 170th Infantry Regiment, so that he can fight at the Battle of Verdun in 1916. So in, in the Battle of Verdun, he is horribly wounded. Some of the doctors think he might never be able to walk again. He's removed from ground combat permanently. Um, but his courage in battle earns him his first military decoration, which is the Croix de Guerre. Um, so he's sent to Lyon to recover from his injuries. Um, then he takes his leave in Paris. And when he's on leave, he's drinking with his friend and his friend is saying, um, you can never fight. You can never be a foot soldier again. Um, and he's like, I'm going to fight again. So his friend bets him $2,000 <sighs> that he can, that, um, that he can't get into the French flying service. Oh my God. That's so much um, money. $2,000. Who the fuck has that? Even like, especially during war. I know. Wow. Well, that they, it was basically like he was saying, it doesn't matter. Um, Eugene was like, if I can't fight, you know, yeah. be a foot soldier, then I'm going to then I'm going to be a pilot. Yeah. And the guy's like, no, you're not going to. That'll never happen. And yeah. he's like, yes, it will. I bet you two thousand dollars. It won't. It's like and a, then Eugene's he thinks like, it's a good bet. But in actuality, <laughs> yes, he's a fucking idiot because he's talking to Eugene Boulard. No, even though no black soldier had ever been admitted before on November in November of 1916. Eugene Ballard wins the bet and joins the Aeronautique Militaire. He starts his training the same year and earns his wings on May 5th, 1917. Wow. He spends that night celebrating with his friends, later saying that, quote, by, by midnight, every American in Paris knew that an American Negro by the name of Eugene Boulard, born in Georgia, had obtained a military pilot's license. <sighs> Eugene Boulard is now the world's first black combat pilot. Back in America, no one has a clue about this mm -hmm. achievement. Mm -hmm. So in April of 1917, when America enters the war, Eugene applies to join the American ex Expeditionary Forces so he can serve as a pilot um, alongside his fellow Americans. But um, the they basically tell him they're not accepting any more applications. But this is a blatant lie. Yeah. He's denied admittance because he's black. Um, but Eugene keeps his head high he states that 
He still takes, quote, some comfort knowing that I was to go on fighting on the same front and in the same cause as other citizens of the United States. Mm. So instead, he sticks with the French divisions. And on June 28th, 1917, he's promoted to corporal. And in August of the same year, he's assigned to the French escadrille uh, Spa 93, then to a different escadrille, Spa 85, on September 13th, 1917. Mm. On the side of his plane, he paints an insignia of a heart with a dagger through it. And below it, he writes, all blood runs red. Mm. So during his piloting career, he flies somewhere between 25 to 27 missions. Fuck. He takes down two German planes, um, but the in the battle against the second plane, um, he actually chases this uh, German plane into territory and no one else sees him shoot the plane down. So he doesn't get credit ah. for for that um, for that kill. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, as he goes down to chase him, his plane gets shot and he crashes. Miraculously, he survives. And afterwards, his fellow soldiers come and they count the bullet holes in his plane. There are 78 bullet <laughs> holes in his plane. Whoa. He's taken to a hospital. He makes a full recovery. After his recovery, he serves a little bit longer. And then he's he's discharged in October 24th, 1919. So then here's where it gets pretty interesting. Okay. So <laughs> that wasn't enough for you. Yeah. After World War One, Eugene is awarded the French is awarded French citizenship for his service. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to Paris. He goes back to boxing, but his war injuries make it kind of hard. So he does yeah. he's not in as many matches. So what does he do? You guessed it. He learns to play the drums and he gets himself work as a jazz drummer in a nightclub called Zelly's, which is located in oh Paris's Montmartre district. Yep. Um, with the help of his lawyer friend, Robert Henri, uh, Eugene scores a license for the nightclub to stay open past midnight, which is a privilege awarded to no other clubs in Paris at the time. So keeping these late hours oh, yeah. quickly makes Zelly's a hot spot. Yeah. And his popularity at Zelly's gives him the opportunity to travel with a jazz band to Alexandria, Egypt, where he not only performs at the nightclub there, but he also boxes in two prizes. <laughs> when he returns to Paris, he makes money hiring musicians for the social elites um, who have private parties. Mm-hmm. He also works as a masseuse, an athletic oh, trainer. What? and. He opens his own gym called Boulard's Athletic Club, where he trains boxers, boxers Panama, Al Brown and Young Perez. I know you're fans of both. <laughs> um, in 1923, he marries uh, in some in some articles. She was described as a socialite. But I, in one article, I read that she was a countess. And so that's what I'm going with because mm-hmm. it's a better story. Um, her name was Marcel Strauman. They had two daughters, Jacqueline and Lolita. And those young daughters were often babysat by Eugene's good friend. The great Josephine Baker. No. <laughs> yes. That's his world. Those are the people around him. It's the He's most like the storied life guy. I've ever heard. Insane. Okay. So when Eugene and Marcel break up in 1935, he ends up keeping custody of his daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, so after four years, Eugene leaves Zelly's nightclub in 1923 to become the manager, the drummer, and the maitre d' at another nightclub called L'Escadrille, which is... That's the word for squadron. I was saying it earlier pretty badly, but that's that's what it meant. Um, So this at this club, there's a cast of stars. Uh, 
a young Louis Armstrong, Josephine Baker, Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald, Jesus. a young Langston Hughes, who Eugene actually hires as a dishwasher for a little while. <laughs> Langston Hughes as a dishwasher. Also, okay. Yeah. Um, Ernest Hemingway ha- likes to hang out there. Sure. He becomes so close with e- Eugene that Eugene also becomes the inspiration for a jazz drummer character in the no- in the novel The Sun Also Rises. <laughs> Eugene doesn't just attract stars, he also makes them. One of his club's singers and drummers is a man named Dooley Wilson, who ends up winning the role of Sam, the piano player in the movie Casablanca. No. Oh, played again, yeah. Sam. Yeah. This is like as I was reading this, I was like, this is this is like a real life, actually cool Forrest Gump. Like he's he is the source. He's the beginning of everything. Uh-huh. He is like living this insane life. And he's like life. constantly reinventing himself and yes. adding. Oh my god! And just being like open and talented and clearly brilliant. I mean, clearly, if you yeah. can just go like, I think now I'm going to be a jazz drummer. Totally, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's not easy. No. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com Goodbye Okay, so now it's the mid to late 1930s Oh, sorry All of Eugene's hard work, good business sense, magnetism, friendship, connections pays off. And by 1928, he's able to buy Escadrille for his own. So now he's the owner of this club. Jesus. So now it's the like mid to late 30s Uh and they're Germans start to frequent, Uh, a.k.a. Nazis, start to frequent this club. uh, So a friend of Eugene's, who uh, is a French policeman, knows that Eugene can speak German from his days on the ship. And so he asks him um, to help the French resistance to spy on the Germans who come to the club. So, of course, a lifelong patriot of France. Eugene loads the German patrons up with champagne and, and of course, pretends he can't understand a word they're saying, listens in on their drunken conversations and reports everything back to the French resistance. um, Any info they can get on what the Nazis are doing. According to the authors, Phil Keith and Tom Clavin, who wrote Eugene's biography, All Blood Runs Red, 
Um, one of many, by the way, there's probably about five out there. Mm-hmm. Eugene was the first person to tip French authorities off about Germans, Germany's plan to invade Poland. But the higher ups ignored the no, tip. Oh, guys. <sighs> OK, so in May of 1940, the Nazis invade France. Eugene answers the call of duty once again, joining the 51st Infantry Regiment. The man is 45 years old. No. And he and he's like, if you if it were me, I'd be like, hey, guess what? I already fucking yeah. served. Night, night. I I'm saw out. the worst. I saw some terrible shit. Oh Thanks anyway. Yeah. He's going back. He fights in Orleans. In June, on June 15th, 1940, but he's wounded. He finds himself in the precarious position of being a black business owner in German occupied France. Mm. He's forced to flee to um, neutral Spain with his daughters. And from there, he's put onto a steamship back to America mm. um, with his war injuries to basically recover in in back in America mm-hmm. after nearly three decades of being abroad. Wow. He winds up in a New York hospital where he finishes recuperating from his war injuries. But after all of these accomplishments, all of these sacrifices, all all of this bravery, no one in America knows about it. Um, no one has any idea. No one cares. Mm-hmm. He maintains his friendships with big stars like Louis Armstrong, but he's it's he's just hanging out. I think they said for a little while he was a, a translator a translator for somebody but for the most part he would just take jobs he sold perfume um he just took jobs as he could yeah because it's still the late 40s in america totally he works security by the end of world war ii he tries he tries to find out if he can go back to his nightclub Mm -hmm. um only to find that it's been completely destroyed Mm. in the war but the French government pays him a settlement. So he uses that money to buy himself and his daughters an apartment in Harlem. So then in 1949, the singer performer Paul Robeson throws a concert to fundraise for the Civil Rights Congress in Peekskill, New York. A lover of both music and, of course, a fighter for racial justice, Eugene goes on August 27th, 1949. But when he gets there, a mob of white supremacists, many of whom are veterans who fought on the same side of the war as Eugene did, and many others who are police officers, surround the concert goers and start beating them with baseball bats and throwing stones. Eugene's caught up in the chaos and beaten by these criminals so badly that he loses vision in his left eye. Oh, my God. All in all, 13 people are seriously injured. None of the attackers are prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so by the 1950s, Eugene's daughters have both married. And so he lives alone in his apartment, surrounded by framed photos of his famous friends, Mm. as well as his 14 military medals. So in 1954... Eugene Ballard is invited back to Paris by the French government as one of three military heroes asked to relight the everlasting flame at France's tomb of the unknown soldier. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And that same year, he takes the job as the elevator (laughs) operator at 30 Rock. One of these things is not like the other. Four years later, in October of 1959, when he's he is given the honor of Chevalier, which is a knight of the Legion of Honor at the French consulate, Charles de Gaulle himself is there to bestow the honor. And he calls Eugene Ballard uh, a true French hero. Mm. So two months later, on December 22nd, 1959, Eugene Ballard goes 
uh, is a guest on the Today Show with the original host, Dave Garraway. Um, and okay. at last, Eugene Ballard has his moment. He wins the hearts of his fellow Americans as he chats with Garraway in, in his elevator operator's uniform uh. with his case of military medals and tells his stories of a life fully and beautifully lived. After that appearance, hundreds and hundreds of letters pour into the Today Show from viewers who are impressed, touched, and moved by Mr. Ballard's story. Mm. And finally, Eugene Ballard is showered with just a fraction of the accolades he so richly deserves from his fellow Americans. <clears throat> uh, the next day, Mr. Ballard returns to his post in the elevator at 30 Rock, and he works there until the pains in his stomach um, that he's been hiding um, force him to see a doctor, and he's diagnosed with stomach cancer. Oy. Uh, Eugene Ballard passes away from this illness on October 12th, 1961, just three days after his 66th birthday. Oh, my God. It took yeah. him so quick. Mm -hmm. This is an excerpt from uh, the 1972 biography, The Black Swallow of Death, the incredible story of Eugene Jacques Ballard, the world's first black fighter pilot. Um, by PJ Carousella and James Ryan. And it's about the day that Mr. Blard died. Um, so his friend, who's an author and an activist named Louise Fox Connell, went to see him, or Connell, sorry, went to see him. Uh, in the following quote, she's just referred to as the woman who had been helping him with his memoirs, but mm -hmm. her name is Louise Fox Connell. So the quote is this, quote, the woman who had been helping him with his memoirs visited him on the day he died. She was crying at the bedside where he lay, seemingly lost to the world he was leaving. Hearing her sobs, his consciousness returned from wherever it had been, and he pulled the tube out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. He had something to say to her. The old horseman, boxer, soldier, pilot, spy, club owner, musician, and father turned to his friend and smiled. Don't fret, honey. It's easy. <laughs> uh, uh. In 1989, Eugene Ballard is posthumous, posthumously inducted into the inaugural class of the Georgia Aviation Hall of Fame. Mm. On October 23rd, 1994, Eugene is posthumously commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. 1994. Wow. And on October 9th, 2019, the Museum of Aviation in Warner Robins, Georgia, erects a statue <gasps> in Eugene Bullard's honor. Oh, my God. A hundred years after World War One ends, mm -hmm. he finally gets... Yeah, a little crud. Yeah. So this is from PBS's American Experience, that article about him. It says, quote, the story of how Eugene Ballard became the first black combat pilot and why his achievement stayed in the shadows for so long is a tale of alternate realities of what happens when opportunity is offered or denied and ultimately seized regardless. Mm. So this is a beautiful, inspiring story, uh, but it's also a true disgrace that Eugene Ballard is not a famous historical figure in America. But the good news is that one of Eugene's descendants, a man named Terrence Chester, has made it his mission to change that. Mm. He's been telling Eugene Ballard's life story and winning awards for it since he was in middle school. Oh, my God. So there's this really amazing article on a website called The Bitter Southerner that I found, and it's written about Terrence by this journalist named Jeremy Redman. And in this article, and I really, really recommend you read it because it's really it's a really good, very informative, fascinating article. But in it, the two men discuss the contrasting story of Eugene Ballard 
and then Eugene Villard's oldest brother, Hector. Okay, so this is an excerpt from that article entitled The Vanishing Stories of the Ballard Brothers. Mm. When Eugene ran away, his older brother Hector was studying business administration at Morris Brown College, a, a historically black college in Atlanta. Hector was preparing to run a peach farm in Fort Valley, one of the biggest in the region. He inherited it from his mother, who inherited it from her mother. Um a white family had cultivated the farm for years, serving as overseers. The overseers would send Hector's family money every year, but without any accounting of how the farm was performing overall. And Eugene wrote in his memoirs, um, the family who ran it when Hector inherited it could not understand why he should not run the orchard to suit himself the way his father and grandfather had. But Hector was determined to manage his own property and was studying to do it right. Years later, his attempt to win control of it got him lynched. <gasps> Short and direct, this last sentence lands like one of Eugene's left jabs. With it, Eugene punches his older brother's fate into history and leaves some clues about what happened to Hector. To Terence, that passage reminds him of the painful stories his grandmother told him about white landowners taking advantage of his sharecropping ancestors. And that is the story of the world's first black combat pilot and American hero, Eugene Ballard, and his older brother, Hector Ballard. It's Black History Month. Black Lives Matter. Black excellence should be recognized and celebrated every day of the year. Great job. Thank you. Great. Pretty amazing. Pretty, Pretty fucking amazing that we don't know that story. I, I am not shocked, sadly, but great telling. Great telling of it. Thank you. Great. Cool. Let's fucking cool, cool, cool. look up these stories. They're out there waiting for us. We have to figure them out ourselves because. Well, and we can. It's not that hard. Yeah. And and people should. And, you know, well, and good. That's right. Hey, stay sexy. Hey, and don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? Ah!